Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. My name is Stuart Foley, and I'll be your host. And we're talking about ABS, mortgages, and specialty finance with TJ Durkin of Angelo Gordon. TJ, welcome. Thanks for being on, man. Thanks for having me, Stuart. It's great to have you. Angelo Gordon is new to us. Um, we're thrilled to have you on. And we want to start this one off like we start them all. What's your hometown? What's your first job? Not the fancy one. And a fun fact. Sure. So I was I was born in, in Brooklyn, New York, but uh, moved quickly thereafter to a small town in New Jersey called Flanders. Wow. There you go. That must have been a little culture shock, right? One Very from there. Exciting, to yeah. yeah, absolutely. And first job? First job was um, I, I filed. I was basically a filer in my mom's office, probably age 14, 15. There you, you know, go. Like old school taking faxes and putting them in uh, file cabinets. <laughs> well, I've done a version of that. We're, we're dating ourselves a little bit on that one. And what's a fun fact? Well, professionally, so I've been at this for about 20 years and I've d- had my whole career in about a one block radius here in Manhattan. So I, I haven't experienced too much of the city. Um, <laughs> but on a, on a personal note, I have no idea how to drive a boat, but I, I'm, I'm a fairly well-versed jet skier. There you go. Jet skis, are, that, those things are really fun. They're yeah. really cool. I was amazed the first time I ever rode one how responsive they are. They're incredibly, incredibly cool. Um, Just have to remember there's no brakes. That's a very, very good point. So tell me about Angelo Gordon. Very well-known firm, very capable firm. Maybe not a household word to our insurance investor audience. So what asset classes do you manage? How long has the firm been around? How big is it? Just give us a little background. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a fifty-plus billion dollar alternative asset manager. We were founded in in 1988. We're still privately owned, and there's about 600 plus employees of us globally. And we're really focused exclusively on credit and real estate. And so, real estate makes up about a third of our AUM in private equity format, and it's broken down mostly into regions. So we'll have U.S., Europe, and Asia, and then we run a net lease strategy as well. And then when you move into credit, that makes up the other two thirds. And there's really three pillar businesses uh, within that. And it's, you know, corporate distressed and special situations. We have a large middle market direct lending business doing business under the brand Twinbrook. And then lastly is the structured credit vertical, which I run. And at the top of the show, I mentioned ABS mortgages, specialty finance on the structured credit platform. Can you walk me through or kind of the history and current state of play for your business at Angela Gordon? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're, we're running just over about $6 billion of equity capital within the strategy across both publics and privates. I joined the firm back in 2008 to really help Angelo Gordon take advantage of, I would say, the distressed securities opportunities that were being created by the GFC, right, across all those you know, acronym food groups that we just talked about. You know, a year later, we were selected as one of the nine managers by U.S. Treasury for their PPIP program, the Public-Private Partnership. And that, I would say, quickly put us on the map with institutional investors. And while we started kind of in the in the securities market, you know, by 2010, just being opportunistic and, and getting to know management teams, we did our first private financing or warehouse transaction to a subprime auto company that had made it through the GFC. They didn't file for bankruptcy, but their traditional bank lenders hadn't turned them back on yet for new origination. And that was something the management team really wanted to do to kind of get back to business. And so 
having known them from owning their securities and, and just doing regular way surveillance, we were very comfortable with how they thought about risk. And so we gave them that kind of initial fresh financing line so they could get back to the business of originating. And, you know, fast forward 12, almost 13 years, we've, we've been doing it ever since, kind of living in both the public and private markets within our specific sectors of expertise. So when we talk about private credit opportunities, and I mentioned the term specialty finance, I think that means different things to different people. So can you kind of define specialty finance and and how you see the overall opportunity set in private specialty credit right now? Yeah, I think we, we like to joke that you know private credit is the most loosely defined thing in our world. Um, so when we think about it in, in my space, I think when we think about specialty finance, it's really non-bank financial companies that are doing lending, but not on an EBITDA basis. So we think of things kind of on an EBITDA, traditional corporate lending lens and then kind of everything else which is more asset based and there's different you know forms and flavors of asset based once you kind of dig into the different food groups but that's kind of at a high level what we think of as specialty finance and what differentiates your platform in this space i know that you know in my background running money size if you're too big you can't take advantage of certain opportunities that exist in certain market segments. Can you talk a little bit about where you think your competitive advantages lie? Yeah, I think that's right. I think when you think about, you know, public markets and securitization, if, if you think about those, you know, household name money managers, they're 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 so big that they're getting a lot of, of that, you know, beta or, or or almost synthetic index exposure. I think when you think about private credit, I think there's a lot of different ways to express it within even within specialty finance. And I would say what our platform brings is kind of a one-stop shop to LPs in the sense of that we live in the both public markets in, in terms of having more liquid, open-ended products that are geared towards securities and, and almost a fixed income alternative for investors. And then we are very active in the private markets, which is lending or owning the raw receivables, not in security form. So the illiquid versions of those same asset classes. And and there's not many of us in the alternative asset management space that I say have core businesses in both. There's a lot of people that maybe specialize in just private or specialize in just the public markets, the QCIP business. And then I think there's very few of us that are on a day-to-day basis managing a large sum of money in both those in both those spaces. And I think what we're seeing particularly in a year like 2022, there's a lot of overlap in opportunities, or I would say opportunities and situations will change mid-process where you thought you were working on something in the public markets, but now a private market solution is better or vice versa. And so having that expertise and those right, the, the, the proper pockets of capital to address those opportunities, I think is is what sets us apart from many others in the in the space. That's really helpful. So Let's talk a little bit about tactical opportunities today, both illiquid and liquid. So a lot has gone on in 2022. Can you talk a little bit about 2022 events and how are you thinking about the macro risks and opportunities as we move into 2023 here? Yeah. So I think let's start with the public markets and I would say just, just technicals, right? So 
there's there's a lot that's gone on this year, whether it's, you know, inflation, SPACs, Ukraine, et cetera. And we sit here in December. And if you take a step back and you look at high yield spreads, just to kind of center everybody, they're in the low 500s, which if you look at a historical basis, isn't that interesting. If you look at dollar prices, they're a lot lower and that's just simply interest rate duration, right? So you know, the index is down a lot in, in the in the mid-teens, but spreads from a credit perspective, I would say are not that compelling on a historic basis, despite all the uncertainties in the world. And that really has to do with, if you think about the last 18 months leading into 2022, I would say most high-yield CFOs did their job, right? There was low nominal interest rates, tight credit spreads, and the extended duration. And so... I would say barring any M&A, there was no need to issue this year. Everyone can kind of sit on the sidelines. You've seen, I would say, limited activity in the secondary market and spreads are, you know, I would almost say artificially tight. And and when you do see supply, i.e. Twitter, the Citrix deal from a couple months ago, you know, you see the banks taking some pretty material losses when, when that debt actually has to clear the market. And, you know, it looks like high yield volumes will be down roughly 75% year over year. So that is like the primary calendar technical environment. If you switch to specialty finance CFOs versus traditional corporates, they just don't have that same luxury, right? And their business model is predicated on being able to hit the securitization markets. And so I, I like to kind of give an analogy of, you know, an auto finance company and that CFO has a budget of doing $4 billion a year of origination, and they're going to do a billion dollar securitization every quarter, right? They've got $800 million of financing from a, you know, investment bank. They've got $200 million of equity below it, an 80% advance rate. And they're going to just turn that over four times in a calendar year. And what we saw happen in the beginning of this year is, you know, rates started to leak out in Q1, credit spreads started drifting wider. And that CFO was supposed to, you know, do their first quarter deal in February. They said, ah, you know, it doesn't feel that great. Let's kick the can 30 days. Let's do the deal in March. And then March kind of didn't feel as good as February. Let's wait till April. And, you know, as we now have 12-month hindsight, every month effectively, you know, got worse and worse. And so what we saw happen by May, June, a lot of these companies that kicked the can were forced to capitulate and, and issue because, not because they had you know, margin call issues. A lot of these financings are not marked to market. It's that that working capital that is sitting below their warehouse is, is their oxygen, right? And so if it's all tied up in these old loans sitting on a line. They, can't, they don't have the capital to make new loans. And so what's the point of having a marketing budget, a sales force? If you can't make the product, you're kind of out of business. And so they were forced to come to market and effectively take what was what was given to them. And, and those were materially wider spreads than where we started the year. You know, on top of that, I would say a lot of mutual funds are a huge consumer of structured credit bonds. And given, I would say, the performance that they've seen year to date, they, they've been on a buyer strike, right? And I, I think they're bracing for redemptions. And so while they haven't really been selling from what we can see in large size, um, they're certainly not buying the way they usually are. And so that kind of double whammy of, of supply still coming and there not being that natural source of demand has pushed spreads in our market to 300% higher than where we started the year. 
right? And so that's very, very different than what you're seeing in the corporate space. And it's predicated on that, that fact that for these companies to continue being in business, if you will, they've got to originate and, and sort of distribute. And so that's what's happening on the public side. And obviously, I would say that volatility and, and the cost of funds expanding dramatically leads to a lot more opportunities on the private side as, as those CFOs are looking for alternative sources of liquidity and financing. And so we're really busy on both fronts because of that. It's really interesting to understand the nuances of that market and the kick in the can down the road and the market just being in their face month after month. I mean, it makes total sense, but it's really helpful to hear you kind of lay it out. I always say to people, I, I learn the most on these podcasts of anybody because, you know, I get a chance to I get a chance to talk to somebody like you that's very close to these markets and I learn a lot, right? And it it's really helpful. So Angelo Gordon hired Matt Hines, who's a, a good friend and I've known Matt for years, clearly focusing your efforts in the insurance segment, which is our our only market, right? Our listeners are insurance investors all over the place. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship you have with insurers? This is private credit has been a big allocation from insurers. It has been a place that they can find good yields, good value. How has this strategy resonated with the U.S. insurance community? Yeah, so I, I would say within our credit business here, more broadly speaking, I mean, we, we've experienced significant growth over the last five years with insurance partners into all the three credit strategies, right? Both as I would say a traditional LP, maybe coming into our special situations fund, as well as as lenders to us, say in the direct lending business. Specifically within structured credit, we have, I would say, seen real interest pick up, I would say, in two, two parts of it. I think what, what we find is that a lot of insurance companies have internal teams that invest directly in structured credit in some format, right? And so they've got a lot of knowledge on the space. They're, they're from a capital perspective, typically investing in the IG part of the capital structure, but they know the asset classes that my team is looking at pretty cold, way more sophisticated than an average, say, pension fund. But what we bring to the table for them is that we've got a much larger team, almost 30 investment professionals, where we're able to, I would say, source, underwrite, and asset manage a lot of the private opportunities within those same core asset classes that they know. And so we've been able to create a structure within our private funds, a, a rated feeder fund that gets um, insurance companies very efficient capital treatment for the risk and get that exposure that I would say they're just kind of from a personnel perspective, capacity constrained to really go out and originate an asset management. But again, at the end of the day, our conversations with them are, are very, I would say, quick and fluent and in depth. And a lot of insurance companies have been really impressed with our, I would say, our homegrown technology um, when we're doing due diligence calls. And, and a lot of them say, wow, I wish we had that, right? And that's how we're able to manage this risk efficiently. Secondly, I think, you know, really a function of 2022 with the move higher in rates, and I would say the widening and spreads, uh, it's fair to say like the securitization markets are at some points this year have been broken and at, at best times have been struggling. And so it, it's created an opportunity for us to work with some, some of our insurance clients and, and strategic partners to 
give them a turnkey solution for residential mortgage exposure, right? You know, just unsecuritized residential mortgages get really great capital treatment. I think really interesting yields right now and credit spreads, given given the dynamic of the securitization markets being clogged. But it's a cumbersome process, you know, with hundreds, if not thousands of underlying loans. And so, you know, we are a major securitizer in the market. And so we've been able to offer some of our insurance clients a, a turnkey solution where we're effectively originating and sourcing to their own credit boxes. We can customize that. We're doing all the loan level due diligence and asset management functions and then delivering them, you know, whether it be on a monthly or quarterly basis, that that kind of custom reporting package that their accountants need and structuring it in a capital efficient way that it's a schedule B asset. And so that's that's seen a huge uptick in interest this year in particular. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously you're seeing a lot of deal flow and that's very important in those markets as well. So TJ, let's talk a little bit about, at the top of the show, I mentioned mortgages and we haven't really talked too much about that. Where do you see value in residential mortgages, for example, right now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're obviously looking at higher interest rates, we're seeing home prices go down. And I think the natural caution is, is that, you know, are we in 2017 again, right? And, and it's a fair question. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of, I would say, belts and suspenders put around mortgage lending since the crisis, right? You got Dodd-Frank, you've got the ability to repay rule, et cetera, et cetera, which if anyone listening has actually tried to get a mortgage in the last 10, you know, 10 years, you, you know, it's not a fun process, right? It, it is delivering a lot of documents in a very cumbersome manner. And so where we sit today is, is that, you know, we fully expect home prices to go down in 2023. We, we expect them to go down. We're modeling them at a 10% decline nationally. It'll, it'll vary by region and MSA. But what you're looking at still kind of coming into this was, was in general, like if, if you look in the non-qualified mortgage space, which, which we have a lot of experience in, Average LTVs are around 70, right? And, you know, if you think about 2007 and, and, you know, to pick on, say, countrywide, you know, if you're looking at subprime there, it was 90, 95 LTV product on much smaller balances, think $200,000, $250,000. So from, from a down payment perspective or skin in the game, you know, you could buy a house with a 95 LTV and write a, you know, $10,000 check. Right now, if you look at non-QM, we're probably averaging $600,000, $700,000 average mortgage balance with a 70 LTV. So it's a it's a million dollar house. Think about the interest rate environment today. It's it's 75% plus purchase. There's no refinancing really activity going on. So what that means is even going into an environment where we know home prices are, are going to decline, someone just wrote a $300,000 down payment check. There's There's no real second lien market out there you know that's a that's a material piece of equity that i just don't think you're anywhere near having that kind of walk away effect that you had in 2007 8 when home prices started to decline so i think a lot of the regulatory actions post gfc have made the mortgage finance market i would say much more robust and, and honestly safe from a credit perspective as an investor. Now, again, I think what we would emphasize too is just away from what the, the regulatory aspect is. I mean, we've just built a tremendous amount of infrastructure to understand what credit box we want to be able to, we're still doing 100% re-underwriting or, or, or loan level due diligence before we settle the, the, the transactions to make sure 
the debt to income ratios are, are what is being advertised. We're, we're agreeing with the loan to values that are being advertised with, with you know, reappraisals, et cetera. So we think it's an interesting market in the sense of the credit's still really good. I think the, the risk adjusted spread is attractive. And on a forward looking basis, there's just going to be a lot less supply of it at these interest rates. And so we're probably have, you know, the, the lowest origination volumes holistically speaking for 2023 that, that we've seen in probably over 15 years. So there'll be less of it available. I mean, we think it's a good time to be buying those assets now because there's still demand for this product. And I think that will cause, you know, price tension or spread compression, whichever term you want, kind of 12 months forward. That's extremely helpful and really interesting. I mean, I lived through, I was running money in the, you know, 06, 7, 8, Time frame, and it's one of the reasons I'm so gray. But it's a very good point you're making about about the differences between now and then. Just kind of a wrap question for you: What risks or phenomenon do you think is not properly priced in the market right now as we go into 2023? Either over or underpriced. Either way. Well, I, I think I think the risk around housing is is overpriced. I think there's a lot of scars still left over from, you know, call it 15 years ago. And, and I, again, I would say rightfully so. I think, you know, whether you talk about what the government's done, I would say the rating agencies have, of course, corrected a lot of their mistakes uh, since then. And I would say that market's much more stable. Where you've seen, I would say, the irrational exuberance in the last, you know, two to five years has been kind of the emergence of this consumer unsecured space. So the the fintech lenders where, you, you know, at two in the morning, you can go online and apply for a twelve thousand dollar loan, and you'll find out instantaneously. Um, we're seeing we're seeing the the performance or fundamentals, I would say, start to you know really rapidly deteriorate over the last you know six to nine months as a lot of that stimulus tax credit money has burned off, particularly at the lower income levels within the demographics, and you're starting to see that really. I think it's not a secret. But I think you don't want to catch a falling knife there either. And so, you know, we're still looking at that space fairly actively. There's, I would say, a lot of tourists that got into that, looking for yield, chasing yield in 2021 that didn't really know what they they bought. And so it's not to say we're afraid of it, but it needs to be at the right price. And so that's where we probably spent a lot of time, honestly, in the last 90 days, looking at different pools coming out of different types of sellers that are just saying, you know what, we're we're hanging up the towel. We we should have never bought this. We have no idea where this is going. And so that's the place where I would say there's been the risk was definitely mispriced and now it, it's coming back to bite some of those buyers from, you know, 12, 18 months ago. That's great color. I appreciate it. So I was a professor for a few years and I got a soft spot in my heart for young people and people who are early in their careers, right? So you mentioned at the top of the show that you've been 20 years in this business and it's all within about a one block radius in Manhattan. If you could go back and talk to TJ Durkin walking off the stage right after they handed you your diploma, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self today? I mean, it's really just ask a lot of questions, right? I think most people are, are positively inclined to, you know, teach and help younger people, particularly if they see you're putting the effort in on the other side and, and just be a sponge of those answers, right? You can't really expect people to go out of their way 
to just deliver it to you. But if you're proactively asking people questions, uh, very rarely do I see those questions be ignored. That's great advice, man. You know, I wish I would ask more questions along the way too. And it's one of the great things is I love doing podcasts, especially with guys like you that I get in the weeds on markets that I'm not as close to. So, uh, you know, thanks for taking the time for being on and, and spending some time with me this morning. Happy to be here, Stuart. Uh, thanks for having us. Look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. TJ Durkin, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, and Head of Structured Credit at Angelo Gordon. Thanks for listening. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us, review us. We appreciate it. And thanks for listening. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Thank you.